Hey everybody, it's Microphones of Madness. I'm Rodney, over there Steve. Hey. And today we're hitting the books again uh, in our attempt to clear out Steve's to-be-read list. <laughs> we are 0.1%. <laughs> uh, today we are talking about Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin. Now, how long has this one been on your list? Oh, Jesus Christ, since I was like 13. 13. So, I received a copy of this from like my aunt or something. When, like my great aunt, I think it was. Back when I was in high school. And I never bothered to read it. And I was told throughout my entire life that it was like one of those essential books that you have to read. I just never read it, and I don't even know what happened to that copy of it. It was like a trade, you know, a um, mass market, small trade paperback, or right. I don't know, digest size or whatever they call it. Yeah, it was smaller. It was like you know, pocket sized. Yeah, book club size. Whatever. Book club anyway, sized. yeah, you know, tiny, like yeah. a airport paperback. Now it's it's funny you say that the uh, your your original copy went missing. I do believe I bought a copy of this uh, some years ago for uh, Gareth School, um, doing some uh, women author authors unit, and uh, yeah, it disappeared. So I had to obtain another copy. <laughs> to, now, did you did you read it with him? Uh, no, I did not read it with him at the time. Um, he did usually he did a lot of his reading at work while I was at work. Wow. So, uh, but schoolwork and stuff is usually done by the time I get home. So, right. Right on. All right. So, Left Hand of Darkness. Yep. So we are recording this at the tail end of Women Writers Month or Women's Month or yep. know, whatever the patriarchy Deans um, appropriate for uh, you know for women, right? <laughs> right. It should be every month, but you know. Uh, so the the thing about this book that that sets it apart, the reason why I wanted to um, read it was because this is one of the first books that actually tackles uh, the subject of gender mm -hmm. in science fiction, as opposed to. Um, salacious <laughs> um, sexual dealings with aliens. That's right. No, no Captain Kirk's or Commander Rikers here. So yeah. So instead of having weird like, oh, there's a third gender that is needed for the orgy to propagate life on Planet Q, um, this actually takes a serious look at. Uh, gender roles and um, assumptions that we make as as people, mm -hmm. because uh, um, the introduction to my copy actually has an essay by uh, Ursula K. Le Guin about uh, how science fiction is not um, about the future, but really a reflection of the present. Mm -hmm. So uh, also another interesting little tidbit is that uh particularly the back half of this book is a nice little primer on uh daoism oh 
Well, that's cool. Yeah, as uh, I believe uh, Le well, Guin was a Taoist herself. I couldn't tell. I do know that um, the, the title "The Left Hand of Darkness" is part of a larger saying from the planet Winter. Uh, that is basically um, the the yin and the yang. It's, uh, mm-hmm. The left hand of darkness is the right hand of light. Light is the left so, hand of darkness. Darkness right is the left hand of light, or something right. like so, that. Right. So there you go. If that's a primer on Taoism, then yes. Well, that and the um, the religion of our second main character is also very similar. Well, yes, and that is also. So I guess we should get into the weirdness of this. Yeah, why I mean, why everybody recommends here's this book. Yeah. Um, so now, how spoiler heavy do you want to be? Because this is a fifty-something-year-old book. Um, I think we can be. The thing is, like, the plot is almost um, just there. Right. The real... Uh, so, I, you know, if you care about the plot of this book, I guess we won't reveal plot things because, you know, story-wise, the actual story, A to B to C, they, which are... I mean, they kind of... Everything hangs on that. But the concepts are much deeper. Um, and I don't think that they, that we, that it's spoilable, if that makes any sense. Okay. Uh, you can't spoil the concept of, of, uh, how Ursula K. Le Guin views gender equality. True. <laughs> I mean, and, and that's the, the main thrust of this book is, um, you know, is the gender issues and mm-hmm. um as opposed to i mean the basic plot of the book is there is a intergalactic consortium of governments that wants to uh, bring this this world into the fold a, a federation and, of planets if you will and the first and the, the uh the the narrator one of the narrators the main narrator mr i um, is the representative, um, and, and he is um, trying to get these people of their own free will to join, right? Right. Without a dog and pony show, he's just basically arguing. Right. Basically, right. what is- what happens is is that uh, the the uh, organization sends like a scientific team to study the planet, and then they send one person. To go down right. to the planet, make contact, and uh, basically convince them to join the wider galactic civilization. Right, and 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 the you know the backstory being that there was a you know a chariot of the gods, if you will, and humans were seated throughout the galaxy. And, uh, there might have been a, a government at one point, an empire situation. And that collapsed, and now the the people are trying to bring back the brotherhood of men, so to speak. Right. Exactly. So, and they're on this planet, which has uh, now there are several planets where there were some genetic shenanigans going on with the original seeders of humanity. This happens mm-hmm. to be one of them, and the people have evolved. Um, 
a gender neutral society where um, everyone is hermaphroditic. Mm -hmm. They're actually sexless until they're not. <laughs> right, right. Is <laughs> it, is basically what it is. They go through most of their time um, gender neutral, sex neutral. They have neither male nor female parts, and then once a month, um, they develop these parts, and it, it's anybody can become a man, anybody can become a woman. Right. The kimmering is as it's called in the book. Right. So. And that's where the, the, the interest lies. Um, how you have this guy, this man, who is on this planet of hermaphrodites. Um, how he reacts, how they react to him. Uh, but most, most importantly is how his gender prejudices uh, holds back the, uh, his work in, in accepting these people into the main state because he's uh he's basically a sexist prick yeah he's definitely not a, definitely not uh, a fan not of a, women he's not a prick but he's yeah he's definitely um he's got issues <laughs> yeah he's issues, got issues putting it lightly but uh yeah he definitely uh has some some types of prejudice and Really, and and you're right. It does uh, forestall it because he doesn't really have any respect for the people of this planet, and it's almost like he wants to fail at his job. Just just because he's not sure that these 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 people deserve to be in the well, uh, greater scope of mankind. Right. Well, he doesn't consider them to be people. Yes. Um, is what it comes down to, and it, it's uh, so. There's this part where him and the other narrator uh, are basically up Shit's Creek without a paddle, <laughs> and they need to rely on each other to survive. They're trekking across a lake with like absolutely no equipment. They have like a tent and a heater <laughs> and, 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 and a sledge. <laughs> That's right. about it, and and a couple hundred pounds of food. Right. And uh, so they really have to, to trust each other to, to survive. And at one point, um, the, the second narrator, Hearth, mm -hmm. <laughs> they ask um, uh, Mr. I uh, how women are treated, more or less, and, you know, what women do in the, you know, the greater society. And he comes from and he goes, Oh, they do lots of things like their secretaries <laughs> and right. nurses. <laughs> it's not that they're dumb. I mean, he like. Right, right. You know, he, he, he has to full on uh, confront his, his prejudice by actually having to say it out, say the quiet parts out loud. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because, like I said, I isn't a bad person. Uh, he's pretty genuine, I think, except for the whole, you know, when confronted by the other, um, who aren't really an other. He gets a little weird. Um, I mean, it's little things. Like, so these, these people are hermaphrodites, right? Mm -hmm. He refers to them all with male pronouns. Right. 
Uh, and at first I was kind of like, that's really weird that that's happening until I realized that, oh, it's because, you know, his default pronoun is he. Correct. And e even though you, there, there's, there's weird things like he has a landlady, right? Mm -hmm. But he keeps on calling the landlady he. Right, right. Uh, and there's this one part where the king of one of the countries on this planet um, ends up getting pregnant. <laughs> he can't square that circle, really. Yep. Um, and I, and he, he c continues to refer to people as insane, and he can't get his mind around uh, just like this. How much of a cultural difference is derived from uh, just just this physical uh, difference, mm -hmm. and and it's it's interesting. I think Ursula K. Le Guin herself was the daughter of an anthropologist. Uh, if I'm if I'm right, I might be wrong, but I'm almost positive that one of her parents was an anthropologist, and um, and she writes in a very like anthropological um, way. She, it, it reminds me, a lot of the writing, even though it is a story, reminds me of a lot of the stuff I read in college. <laughs> just nice. in, in monographs and, and stuff. Ooh, uh, just very clinical, very clinical um, approach to everything. Mm -hmm. um, and like even like simple interactions between um i and other people um are put under the microscope and and it, it's it's interesting just to, to read that to go, oh my god it's been so long but i think it's also a critique of that um and this is just my own personal view uh that that when you study someone's culture from the outside you are going to bring in every little bit of um, prejudice that you have in there. Right. Uh, well, especially if you're comparing, if you're studying something that's alien, um, you're going to, to have to try to compare it to what you know. And I, I think that's a foible that we run across a lot. Uh, just studying different cultures on this planet Oh, it 100% is because, you know, it, I mean, alien, it's not just people from other planets or things from other planets. You know, other cultures are alien to our culture. I mean, it's the definition. And just some of them are further out than our own in terms of, you know, what's acceptable, what they do. And that's how this reads. I mean, it reads like Margaret Mead going to Samoa. <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned to me that you really enjoyed this book. Uh, yeah, I thought it was, it, you know, for a a book written in 1969, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that is not, um, you know, beat them up pulp action uh, you know it's really good it's one of those science fiction from the school of um, you know it makes you think about your own situation 
and and I enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Um, now you you mentioned that, uh, I, and I believe his name is pronounced Ai or Ae, like the uh, Canaanite city. That was the only thing I could uh, think of. And about two hundred and forty-seven pages in, uh, Harth even says that it his name is the expression of pain. <laughs> I. I. Hi. Hey. Unless, it, unless it's Arg. <laughs> uh, well, we'll have to. Anyway, we'll have to it's spelled on that. AI. It's spelled AI. So. Right. Um. So, you said you said I. I, I think he's just a prick. I mean, we'll just straight up. I. I. I don't know if he was, if, you know, given that the ecumen, our, our uh, shadowy organization that, you know, striving to create brotherhood. Yeah, I don't know. Galaxy. I haven't read, I haven't mm-hmm. read, and I might have read Rokanon's World a mm-hmm. billion years ago. Um, okay. But I have not read any other uh, books in this series. So I don't know if the ecumen may be like a shitty um thing i just thought they were kind of like you know well you know i found myself wondering particularly in the uh the glacier crossing passage which for me was the best part of the book uh and and that's where you get to a lot of the the deep actual deep conversations between the our two narrators that um maybe the ecumen doesn't necessarily send the best person for the job but the person that might learn the most it's possible you know the the you know it's like maybe the best person for a diplomatic position is the one who uh, can most benefit from understanding a culture and maybe uh envoys are selected in that way and it was just something i wondered and you know it's not there's no evidence for it in the book but you know it just seems that you know, given the way uh, Ginley, you know, he kind of holds the ecumen in, with a little bit of reverence. You know, almost like uh, you know their their ways are mysterious and odd, <laughs> but they have possibly, the best interests of humanity at heart. Possibly, but I think um, he was also on the planet for uh, two years. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. He was on there. Uh, we pick up kind of like toward the tail at, end of his mission. Yeah. So I mean, he he's he's on there for two years. He's uh, probably missing home. Um, he probably looks at the ecumen with uh, rose-colored glasses. I'm sure he's like <laughs> like a, you know missing burgers and baseball. Right. They don't have that here. Right. The, well, the subject of patriotism is broached a couple of times as well, and we find out that uh, our second narrator is probably a very good example of what you might want to call a patriot, although his loyalty is not necessarily to his flag, it's to his the, the wider people of the planet. Right. Or his country. Right. Yeah, but and, ultimately, and ultimately, ultimately the planet. Yeah, exactly. Which which also is kind of interesting. Um, we also get a little bit of uh, dumbass space communists. 
<laughs> do you get do you get the space commies? Um, and that's the thing is like if you look at the tech level and like the non most of the cultural heritage, I guess, of the countries that are there, it is pretty much nineteen sixty nine Earth, with a few exceptions. Mm. But you know. They have they had radio and they you know drive around in cars and they have entertainments. You know it's it's not like they're going to you know this. It's not a primitive planet by any stretch of the imagination, right? It's they're just like us. Yeah, mid early to mid twentieth century tech level. They do have electric vehicles though, in widespread use. That's true. So, you know, there's there's. A lot of uh, interesting bits and bobs that go to go into the world building here. Yeah, uh, you know it's it's a cold world. Very so cold. They, they have you have like this intersection of. I was thinking of they're basically like Norway, mm-hmm. <laughs> Norway, Finland. You know, there's your commies. <laughs> yep, and you know, yeah, yeah, you, you have like late stage monarchism right king olaf <laughs> yep and yeah it's it's it just strikes me as is an interesting place um now let's let's talk about one criticism that you brought up to me and it, i i definitely agree with you that the flow is a little messed up uh, with the interspersal of some uh, mythology from this world, um, yeah, that is kind so, of out of context, but also not. Yeah, so they, there's already two points of view, right? Mm-hmm. You have two point of view characters, and interspersed between this, their narratives are these little vignettes of history and lore that um, are written down. And I think that they're from the first um, the first manned mission to winter, mm. right? Yep. A- and they, they are pertinent because they, they put context in historical context into the action that you're about to um, go through in the present. Mm-hmm. But they break it all up and they kind of um, chop it to the point where it it's it's hard to maintain um, that desire to read because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can she'll end a chapter on a cliffhanger, and then she'll talk. You know, you'll read for for an hour or so about um, you know the guy got kicked out of his his tribe for breaking his or not breaking his oath with his brother and right right you know and and the actions in the story you know inform the next part of the narrative so you kind of know what's going on but getting to the next part of the narrative is just kind of like a slog at that point it takes a little bit of time to get back into the pace of the book right right so that that's my big criticism with it is that um and it's not an 
it's not a smooth read. It's something you have to concentrate on and pay attention to, mm-hmm. um, or or you can easily get lost. So having a you know big sections that kind of disrupt that, um, I don't do it any favors. Especially especially when uh, points of view characters are switched after these. Uh, there were a couple of times that uh, our that the narrator switched, and there was a break of uh, one of these uh, lore sections, and I was like, "Who the hell is talking here?" And yeah. then, oh, wait a minute. Okay, I got you. It's Estraven. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but other than that, you know, it, it's interesting that you know a, a zillion things could have happened in this book and, and none of it would have mattered because like the really good part of the book like you said is the the philosophy during the trek across the glacier well that and, and just the 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 survival aspect itself you know the uh, enemy mind kind of deal where you know Ginley does not trust Estraven throughout the whole book. He thinks Estraven is double-crossing him, er, screwing him over at every every turn uh, because of this concept. Uh, I forget what it's called. It's But it's uh, kind of like a subterfuge type of thing where you don't explic- necessarily explicitly say exactly what you mean. You're supposed to infer what they mean. Well, there's and, that and the fact a that cultural he, aspect and there's that and he doesn't trust women. That too, because he's a prick. He, he has well, he doesn't have any respect for anybody on the planet, including Harv Estrogen. Um, so you know, he's he's you know, he's slashed his own tire in that respect. This is true. Uh, you know. The fir- in fact, the first character we see. And and this this another thing about we mentioned the the survival adventure part of the book, but there's a couple of books sections of the book um, early on that are like political intrigue, and then there's one section in the first third that's almost like an idiot abroad, where where Ginley is wandering the countryside trying to learn more about the culture. Right, and we find that the first uh, person that he encounters on this world that he truly respects is the head priest at a certain temple. Right, uh, Fax, I believe, is the name, or Fox. Um, you know, and then we find you know he and and Ginley explicitly references this that you know this is the first character that he really has any type of trust or respect for and it might be because this character i believe if i recall correctly is a celibate so he really thinks of him as a eunuch uh that's interesting maybe um i yeah they, they go into the ritual of uh far seeing you know because these they have their own uh oracle tradition within this culture and everybody has a role, and I think Fox's role is just kind of be is there as a mediator or a, a capa- You know, he he keeps the energy cool, 
like a capacitor or heat heat sink or something. <laughs> although, although I one of the things I really enjoyed as a cultural aspect of of this planet was how a cisgendered person is regarded as a pervert. Well, right. I mean, but you know, because because they they're, don't they're they don't go back to normal. normal. <laughs> they're they're not normal. Right, you know, in the in the uh, scheme of of their estra cycle, right, and and how because because Genli is is cisgendered, they behind, kind of behind his back and later to his face they refer to him as a pervert, and right is I, I just kind of got a giggle out of that. Well, and that also hampers him, too. I mean, here's the thing that really struck me about this book is you don't have a um, a culture where everyone is the same. Mm-hmm. So not everyone on this planet is a good person and not everyone on this planet is a bad person. Right. Uh, you have like, as a matter of fact, no one is. Everyone's got their ups and downs. It's very well nuanced uh, character creation. Or, or, in or in book. other words, everyone in this in this world is normal, right? But you know, oftentimes you will, especially in, in genre fiction, you will have um, similar people acting similarly. If that right. makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, and it, it kind of one of those one of those tropes that boils over where you have. An entire planet of evil. Right, exactly. And so not everyone in this on this planet um is on I's side. Right. As a matter of fact, most aren't. And right. most are um just as self absorbed and um and petty as we are or as I is. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the communists, you know, they, they basically have, you know, they have parliamentary proceedings where, uh, you know, they, they grill them. Yep. They grill them because, because I mean, you know, it is I mean, you kind can see of Newt Gingrich getting up there and, and asking some of the same bullshit questions that, um, you know, were asked, were asked about I. Mm-hmm. Because, and you know, you take it from from the perspective of a native. Uh, this guy just basically says he's from another planet. Um, he is, uh, you know, gendered as a male permanently, but that's not. It's rare. It's uncommon, but it's not unheard of on this planet. Right. Right. He's a pervert. He's not like a you know an alien. Um, the the only evidence they have that he's from another planet is a spaceship that is in another country that they've never seen. And was rapidly taken apart to see how it works. Right. And you know, the word of um, of a traitor. Right. And and the Ansible, which they don't know how it works and they don't know that it's actually doing what it's supposed to be doing. Right. If I have a, a cell phone and I text somebody and say, "Look, it's Obama," <laughs> right? Because no one's ever like spoofed someone's identity on the internet before. So, 
uh, you know, you, you look at it from the perspective of the people who live there. Like, it's a little far-fetched. It would be the little far-fetched here. Right. It's right. You know, the old adage of Jesus came today. No one would believe. Him. And it's true. It's true. It is absolutely true that, you know, if 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 an if somebody came out today and said, I am an alien from another planet, my spaceship is, you know, parked, you know, in orbit of your sun. Nobody would believe him. We'd we'd lock that sucker up. Right. I mean, we have. We, as a society, have means of maybe checking some of that, mm-hmm. right? We have a orbiting telescope, but uh, they didn't. They didn't even have aircraft, right? They. It's like survival on on this planet was was hard enough. They didn't really have the opportunity, I don't think, to 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 engage in that kind of curiosity about the universe outside. And right. Well, they had, they had birds. They had no birds, so they didn't think things can fly, right? Mm-hmm. That was the thing. There's no space flight. There's no air travel. Right. Because there's no birds. There's no example. And, you know, well... Why would a normal man ever think he could fly? Right. Now, is that argument... Um, valid i don't know there's no spacefaring um animals and we have rockets so who knows <laughs> uh, but i think i think as a species humanity or earthlings rather we'll we'll call them terrans or earthlings or something just to because because the people of this world <laughs> of the world winter are humans and they call their world earth as well right the earth and I just I think that the, the the climate is a harsh enough place. The civilization is kind of tenuous at best. One's place in a civilization is tenuous at best. And I just don't think that they have really developed any type of curiosity about you know what goes on beyond the atmosphere. One because the sky, the only thing that comes out of the sky comes down. Right. Well, they also they know about other stars. They know what they are. They're not idiots. Right. But I don't um, think they, they have much curiosity beyond knowing that you know that's what they are. You know what I mean? Right. Right. They had mentioned. Now maybe it was a child that had mentioned that um, there were legends that when you die you go to other worlds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the uh, religions has that kind of like. Uh, you go to another world, and they ask Ginley if that's similar uh, to what other worlds are like. Right. So, you have that. I, they're not dumb, but they are pragmatic, I mm-hmm. guess. And right. they and they are uh, selfish. You know, mm-hmm. they're they're looking out for themselves as individuals, as groups, as opposed to. Um, you know, just taking this this freaks word for what they say they are. Right, right. However, you know, it's not necessarily every person for themselves on this world because hospitality is very important. If yes. you go to well, any random house and ask for shelter, you know, the cultural norm is they will take you in, feed you, clean you, keep you warm, and send you on your way 
when you're rested enough. Or well, yeah, or, be, because if you don't, you'll kill people. Yeah, <laughs> because the environment is so hostile. Exactly. Exactly. You, you'll end up killing them. So I mean that that makes sense. Right. <laughs> Why that would be. You know, and it's it's also interesting to to see that bounced off of our 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 narrator, uh, Ginley, because he's not used to that either. And he comments on it every time it occurs to him that these people that he does not necessarily like, that he does not trust, willingly take him in wherever he goes and and treat him as a member of their family for however long it is he's in a particular location. He remarks on it every single time. Yeah, but sometimes, um, you know, it is just that. It's that cultural norm. But other times it's, you know, somebody's trying to uh, gain some sort of upper hand on their rivals. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when he is in um, communist country, I forgot the name of the, of the place, uh, and he's staying with basically a congressman. Right. A member of the Central Committee. Right. Um He's not there because you know it's ho- it's the hospital hospitality it's the hospitable thing to do. He's there because it will it increases this guy and this guy's party's prestige. Right. I think the hospitality is is a key function of the the first nation he was. In. The rest of it is you know the the other country uh, our communist country is it that's the the practice has kind of morphed with a different meaning that it's not entirely voluntary. Right. Yeah. I mean, they, they definitely have factions and at any given point you can be just carted off to the camps. Yep. Disappeared to the gulag because they don't kill you outright. (laughs) But if you happen to die at work camp, you just happen to die at work camp. We sent them to work camp. Uh, they died. Uh, sorry to hear. Too bad. So sad. <laughs> but it, it it is like the most lax concentration camp in the history. Of yeah, history. yeah. It's like it's like the guards are also inmates. So, right. <laughs> so it's like they don't really care. They just like what wi- winter is the best uh, best fence or something like that because it's like. You're not going to escape because it's the only warm place with food for miles. Right, because it sucks. It's like having a prison on a... Um, on a, in, a rocky a island full of sharks. <laughs> or like on a median strip on a, on a major highway. You can't escape because you get run over. Right. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's iso- isolation is the, the big... Suspended, suspended over an open mouth of an active volcano. <laughs> Like, Wait, that was an avatar. You can escape if you like, but <laughs> yeah, you're not so going like, to like it. I mean, like, you just walk in. I'm the new guard. Here's my papers. It's a new guard. <laughs> it says your name is Chuck. Okay, Chuck. <laughs> Come on hey, in. Look, gra- grab a gun. <laughs> grab a gun. Uh, hey, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just surveying the prisoners. Hey, what's up with this one? Oh, he's dead. I think yeah, you're I right. Mean, he, he more or less just walks into this this 
prison and walks out <laughs> with, with our boy. With our, yeah, <laughs> and that's the beginning of the and, and not even country not even uh, not even in a in a clever way. He just like picks him up in his sleeping bag and throws him over his shoulder, yeah, <laughs> like a like yeah. a sack of potatoes, and just walks out. Hey, where are you going with that? Oh, he's dead. Okay, make sure you take him outside and throw him in the snow so it doesn't right. stink. <laughs> Bury him because when the snow melts, we don't want the body to be exposed. Right. We don't we don't want the smell. We don't want the we don't want the uh paperwork of finding <laughs> of, of a body nearby. Right. You got it, bud. <laughs> yeah. I I think I think this book does have a little bit of uh tongue in cheekness to it. Like like Le Guin is kinda taking a little bit of a piss on certain things, certain aspects of, of she our society. She don't, like, she don't like the commies. That that's true. That's true. I mean the communist country is definitely a shitty place to live. She does not like the commies and they have shitty food. Yep, yeah. Down to the fact that they have shitty food. So you mentioned you mentioned at the beginning, at the onset here, that this is referred to you as a cl- as a classic, a, one of the must reads, kind of like the canon of science fiction literature, if yes. you will. Uh, does it mean does it earn that spot in your mind? As as we both know, the canon of literature is kind of uh, kind of bullshit. It's 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 made up. Well, I think, yeah, I, I think the canon of science fiction especially is bullshit. I mean, what's what, Asimov? Mm-hmm. You know, Herbert. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's boring. Um, I would, I, I would say that if you like um, your science fiction to be subtle, uh, to make you think about um, maybe standards that cultural standards that you everyone has and maybe cause you to question them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say, yeah, go ahead and read this. It's important. Um, and you could see how it has affected so much. Like it, you know, just in terms of you know gender identity in science fiction, queer identity in science fiction. Uh, just how, you know, uh, not to be, there's a lesson in how, in less is more, I guess is, is the best way to put it, right? Because mm-hmm. there's there's things that she doesn't come out and say, and you have to infer from the writing. And I think, like, Jane Wolfe owes a lot to Ursula K. Le Guin. Um, you know, and, you know, if, if if Gene Wolfe owes a lot to somebody, then it's you know it's a good thing to go ahead and try and read that. That makes sense. That makes sense to me. There was a couple. There were a couple of moments where uh, I did think of the land across. Yeah, there there definitely were. I mean, there was definitely some some Kafka moments in there. Um, most definitely, you know, Gene. I guess Gene was a little bit more tongue in cheek about it. Mm-hmm. But you know that was written in the aughts, or or, or maybe the early tens, 
as opposed to you know late 20th century right right and and gene wolf was you know conservative cis male as opposed to the exact opposite of that so he, he was ginley no not really but no i like to think that gene wolf was a little bit more open than than that but maybe not he's a little more s raven yeah so yeah i would recommend it Go ahead and read it. It's part of a larger uh, body of work by her, the Hamish Cycle, mm-hmm. which includes like her Cannon's World and um, some other things. It's not. I think she has like three main like bodies of of um, reality going for Earth, Sea, and this, and then there's another one. All right. Uh, yeah, I would definitely agree. Definitely check it out. Um, you know. There, there were points that uh, I was not as um, enthralled with it, I guess. And, and a lot of it was the, the flow parts that we discussed. But, you know, I'm not going to say it's bad. Um, I just, I like the second half of the book much more than the first half. I'll tell you that right, right now. And, you know, because that's when we started getting to the really good stuff. Um so yeah, I would say definitely you know check it out. It's 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 worth the time. Does does it occupy a place in the grand uh, scheme of literature? I don't know. I'm not sure anything really does. Tell you the truth. Um, but yeah, I would say definitely check it out. Well, there you go. And that was Left Hand of Darkness, ladies and gentle people. And we're Microphones of Magnus, and you can go fuck yourselves. (laughs) 